0: I had just started dating my husband, now husband, and we were 21 and he then, you go for your follow-up and he just spoke about his findings and my husband Jonathan came with me and he said, uh, he's an older guy and he was like, and you know, we recommend that if you'd like to start trying for children, you should try sooner rather than later and I couldn't even look sideways because I was thinking, thank you very much doctor. Like I really like this guy and we're 21 and you're telling us to start having children. And I remember the, and he didn't even kind of flinch. And then the car ride home, I was like, wow, do you like kids?
1: And welcome to this in conversation episode of Shameless with the formidable Kylie Brown. Kylie is in the public eye, partly because her husband, Jonathan Brown, is a well-known former AFL star and radio personality. But it's what Kylie has managed to do with her profile and platform that has blown us away. After struggling with chronic endometriosis for two decades and undergoing no less than nine surgeries, including a hysterectomy at 34 to manage her condition, Kylie opened an Instagram account, Endorunner, to track her journey and spread awareness about endo. In this chat, we talk about Kylie's battle with her body so far and why she decided to run a marathon when the odds were well and truly stacked against her. Kylie was candid and generous and we are so grateful for her insights in this episode and we're absolutely certain that what she has to say will make so many of you feel less alone. Just a quick trigger warning as well before we jump into this one, this episode does deal with issues pertaining to pregnancy loss, miscarriage and postnatal depression and may be triggering for some listeners. Here's Kylie. Kylie Brown, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. This is the first in-person in-conversation we've done since March and I actually don't know where to look right now, <laughs> <That's> a little <laughs> bit awkward.
0: Thank you, thank you for having me, no it's exciting.
2: We always start every interview with the same question, and that is, what were you like as a kid?
0: Oh, I would say sporty. My mum, I would say a bit shy, but then my mum used to say that every time I opened the fridge door and the light would come on, I'd start dancing. (laughs) (laughs) That was how she described me. My school reports would always be like about my, you know, schoolwork, blah, 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 but Kylie often gets distracted in class and distracts others, so... (laughs) I don't know, love a chat. And um, yeah, that'd probably be a good summary.
1: When you were a teenager and you started getting your periods, was there a point when you realised that your period pain was maybe different to the people around you or that it was really starting to be quite paralysing?
0: I think from the very get go, I knew well, I, I mean, as people think, it's, you know, you only know what you've got. And I don't think it was really spoken about much. And I was quite late, I was 15. So I was quite late getting my period. So I think when the conversations were happening, my friends were sort of more 12, 13. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of past that point of conversation. Yeah. But I didn't think it was normal because I would have to use like pretty much like maternity pads and I would have to change during the night and I, and wrap myself in a towel and would be really depleted from every period, anemic, all those things, often couldn't go to school or I'd have to come home from school because it was so heavy, which I hated because, you know, sport day if I missed out on or whatever. So, and pain wise, again, I just thought it, that was normal.
2: It's so hard. I mean, in high school, I feel like everyone always talks about period pain. And so it would be really difficult to figure out, okay, what's normal period pain and what's yeah. not
0: normal, right? Yeah. It's that whole, like, suck it up. Yes, you get a period and, you know, take naprogesic. And I'm like, that doesn't, like it did nothing for me. It just never really took the edge off. So the only thing that ever worked was a heat pack and rest because it wasn't just pain and how heavy it was. It was the exhaustion as well that would then kind of go on for a couple of days after
1: So what was the point where you thought, I'm going to go to doctors and actually get this sorted out? I mean, I know you got your diagnosis at 21, but before that, was there a lot of talking to doctors and talking to people being like, can somebody please help me with this?
0: No, I never, I just, again, I just thought I had, that was my life and that was how they were. And that's what I had to deal with. So I was 21 and I had had I think uh, they'd done, went to do a smear and found out that I had some abnormal bleeding and some cells that didn't look right. So then I was referred to a gynecologist. And at that point, you know, I said to the doctor, the GP, I was like, well, what could this be? Because you know how they talk in code. (laughs) And then at one point he was, you know, he went through everything and he said up to like cervical cancer. And I was like wow, this is intense. Like, Then I just was very lucky that the surgeon and the gynecologist I was referred to ran the research institute for Queensland endometriosis Mm. because five minutes, like I was in with him for five minutes and he was like, this is wrong, this is wrong. And I'm 99% sure you have endometriosis. And I was like, I have what? Then even after the surgery, I had just started dating my husband now husband and we were 21 and he then you go for your follow-up and he just spoke about his findings and my husband Jonathan came with me and he said oh, he's an older guy and he was like and you know we recommend that if you'd like to start trying for children you should try sooner rather than later and I just remember <laughs> oh staring God. at the doctor and I couldn't even look sideways because I was thinking thank you very much, Doctor. Like, I really like this guy. We've been dating He's for going to three run. months. <laughs> three months. And we're 21 and you're telling us to start having children. And I remember the ca- – and he didn't even kind of flinch. And then the car ride home, I was like, uh, that's weird. You know, like, wow. Do you like kids? <laughs> like, But so, yeah, I was just lucky that it wasn't something that scared him off. But, yeah, it was pretty confronting at 21 years old to be told that. So
2: is that something that you guys legitimately had to talk about then, that you get home, you're 21, you actually have to have that conversation. Okay, do we see kids in our future? Do we see each other in our future? And, like, what's the timeline?
0: Yeah, well, I knew he – he's from a really big family, so I knew he wanted children That because we'd sort of spoken about that. But we also didn't want to just rush into it for the sake of it. We – kind of had a conversation i guess that 21 year olds have and then it was just managing symptoms and managing it and it wasn't something that i wanted to then just do because it was forced and i just sort of had to think well if it's meant to be it will happen and i'm not going to just go and try for a baby at 21 because you know mm. although but it's scary because mm. you think you know do you start freezing eggs you do you, But we were just lucky that the course and the management that I was under was fortunate for us to be able to have children. What
1: did fear and stress look like being told that at 21? Because I think one of the forgotten conversations in, you know, the conversation about endometriosis and other kind of conditions similar is this sense that young women are being told that, you know what, a certain amount of women with this condition Mm. will struggle to have babies, but we don't know if it's you yet and off you go, good luck. Yes. And personally, I've always found that a very difficult thing because I'm like, well, I've got no information to go off. I have no idea what I'm meant to do. No. How did you
0: process any of it? I think it was more... I just was like no I will have children mm-hmm. and I just had to at that point and I know a positive mindset is not going to change if things are you know medically that's what it is I just literally had to just be like you know I, one day I will have children yeah. and I will do whatever I can and whatever it takes but the fear is okay we get to that point and I can't will you know Jonathan and I stay together mm-hmm. because I know fam and we had we had that hard discussion before we were married and you know I did say to him like I know that children is something you really really want like he wanted four so where does that but he was always like nope we'll be fine, we'll be fine. But you know, some people aren't fine. Yeah, And it is a lot of stress on relationships. And it's also, I would understand if people walk away, because if that's what they want, and sometimes love isn't enough, and then does it put that pressure on the relationship? So everyone's so different. And we're just very lucky that we didn't have to come across that.
2: Mm. It sounds like you two have a pretty incredible relationship to not be frazzled or flustered at 21 and then to not have that rock your relationship either in the lead up to marriage and thinking no we're just going to figure it out sounds like you guys have a
0: really solid connection together yeah well we um so I had two or three operations I'm trying to think before we got married and then I went in because I had some bad flare-ups and I knew that we wanted to start trying the minute we were married And I remember going to this new gynecologist because my dear man had retired and he was quite abrupt and he's like, nope, you need another surgery, and this was three months before the wedding. You know, you won't fall pregnant and if you do, and I ended up not then sticking with him, but that was quite confronting too. So like you said, that relationship and that strength you have to build because it's something you have to talk about. Mm.
1: How did endo infiltrate your day-to-day past the point of being a teenager? Like you're in your mid-20s and you've had a couple of surgeries. What did the pain look like day-to-day and how did it impact day-to-day?
0: I think the worst thing about endo pain is it comes out of nowhere. And I think you can probably agree with that. So you might be having fine. Like I might have two weeks and I'll be like, nah, no issues. And then bang, it's like comes on and some people would almost look and be like, but you were fine yesterday. Like an hour ago you were fine. Like how are you now in bed? Or, And I tried very hard to – and I still don't let it take over my life. So that's why certain things I'm like, no, you can be going somewhere else because I have stuff to do. So day to day it is probably that, oh, God, will I have a flare-up? Or foods, like foods is really – frustrating for me because I did have quite a lot on my bowel so going out to a restaurant I go through the menu and I'm like oh no that'll be bad that'll be bad like I'll have to leave the table so my diet is very very basic and I feel like that fussy picky eater like no I'm pesca you know and just making up all these different things but it's not it's real.
1: I want to talk to you about anger and frustration too because I think having endo and vaginismus myself I think one thing I would never really heard anyone say was how angry they were at their own body or how angry they were that their mind often didn't cooperate with their body. Mm-hmm. And that sense of like consistent frustration that you're like banging your head against the wall, being like, I can never really understand what my body is doing. Like you can never really properly understand what's yeah. happening inside. Did you feel any of that, like anger and frustration and that head banging against the wall?
0: I did because once I started to sort of realise, because I was lucky, so I had my surgeries and then between, I, but I don't know if I was told that having children will fix it. Yeah. So that was back when I was diagnosed. So I'm nearly 40. So that's learning years ago. Um, but <laughs> I was always told that, you know, once you fall pregnant, it should cl- almost clear out. And my endo was worse after children. But then other people are like, no, God, it's so much better. Mm. Once I started to then do research, so it was about anti-inflammatory diets, you know, exercise and anything that I could do to try and control it growing back and the rate at which it grew back, which we, we really don't have anything. We, all we can do is research and try things. Mm-hmm.
2: Did you ever feel anger at the medical professionals who were telling you things that didn't eventuate or telling you really harmful things like, no, you need surgery now right before your wedding? I imagine it sounds to me like anyway, just speaking already, you've had some doctors who are incredible and really helpful yes. and others who really hindered your ability to cope with the illness. Is that right? Yes.
0: Well, I was lucky, like I said. So the first surgeon ran the research. He was incredible. Quick diagnosis, bang, it's not in your head, like, which is a lot of what women hear. Mm. Second was the one I – and I was like, he's not for me, so I moved on. But some women can't do that and they don't know because they're looking at the professional. So that is who they are guided by. So then they feel let down by that. Yeah. Second surgeon who actually operated on me was – he delivered my last baby and then he was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And then my recent one, Katarina Ang, who's here in Melbourne – She was, again, unbelievable. So when it comes to that, I have been very lucky. Like My surgeon who did a lot of my surgeries and he performed my hysterectomy, he was on the Gold Coast and even while I was in Melbourne, I would Facebook him and tell him I'm coming up, things have flared up and he would just straight away, okay, call the rooms, I'm operating on this day. So I'd go up on my holidays and it wasn't a great holiday but I didn't trust anyone else at that point. Yeah. And I didn't even have to say symptoms. And then what we'd do is just before I'd go under, he'd be like, right, tell me the spots you're feeling it, tell me where it is. And I would, it's almost like you're getting a laser level. And I'd be like, here, 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 I reckon there's some on my bladder, some on my bowel, and a little bit, you know, to the left of here. And I'd wake up, and once I came to properly, I'd be like, okay, where was it? And he's like, you know your body too well. Like every single spot. And it was good for him because then he knew where to look for it. But I think that my frustration is more for the stories and all the stories I've been emailed and direct messaged about being misunderstood and pushed away. So I get frustrated because I very I have one experience, mm. but these are people who are having it for 10, 15 years and my frustration is for them mm. that they're misunderstood.
1: For sure. I want to ask you about your first pregnancy because I imagine with – Most people that fall pregnant with their first pregnancy, they're euphoric, but with you, it must have been a sense of relief too. Like this is the thing that we both wanted. We wanted to have a baby. Did you feel that
0: initial sense of relief? So my first was a miscarriage and that I sort of didn't know I was pregnant, but then I miscarried in the shower and then I went and had the test, and oh, so you found out you're pregnant after you miscarried. Yeah, it oh, was. Wow. I was like, "Wow, this period is wild and has come on really quick, and there was lots of clots." And I was just standing in the shower, and I was like, mm, "Like I've had some wild periods, but this is something else." And then the blood test result came back that it was that I was pregnant and that it was going down. And then when I fell pregnant with Olivia. I was excited, but it was – I don't know. I think you just – you have to wait. So you have to wait for the 12 weeks. So we just told very immediate family. So you wait for the 12 weeks and then even when you get that back, then you've got to wait for the 20-week because the 20-week's checking all the organs and that's a really intense like one-hour scan. So I felt like by the time I could get excited – Clearly, everyone's like, yeah, we know you're pregnant. but (laughs) We can see it. Yeah, Yeah. like we get it, you're pregnant. But but I always held back, held back, held back, held back. And then I never got that way on the stick, Mm. oh, my God, you know, and posting things and like not that back then I think we only had Facebook but even still I didn't really use it. But I never got that moment with my first. Mm. So then when I fell pregnant with my second, which ended up being an ectopic pregnancy – I was like, nope, I am going to celebrate this from the beginning and whatever's meant to be will be. And then I lost it and – well, I had surgery and had to have it removed. But I thought, you know what, I – the people who I told were the people that I needed to support me anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just – after that I was like, no, if I uh, have more babies, like I'm going to be excited from the get-go because otherwise when do you get excited?
2: It's an interesting thing the 12-week rule because it kind of treats pregnancies as only legitimate once they do hit that mark and it yes. kind of makes miscarriage even more taboo because it's like oh well don't tell anyone because if you lose yeah. it then what happens then it's like well is that the worst thing in the world that women would announce it early on and then have that support exactly on too,
0: right and I guess it depends how people what support and, and the level of the people that you tell yeah. as well yeah. but you know you're best friends in your family are who you need there at that point mm. so that's when I was like no I is it not considered viable until you're 12 weeks
2: yeah and it's like well should we not talk about it then it yeah. kind of reinforces that thing like
0: oh don't talk about it that big hiding thing where I've done so many times of the, over the past few years where my friends have been you know we've been out for lunch and they're like I'm pregnant And I'm like, oh, my God, that's so exciting. But, you know, I'm going to have mocktails. So then people would be buying them drinks and then I would have to drink them for them. (laughs) (laughs) So by the halfway through lunch, I'm like buckled in there. Uh, I'm I'm taking one for the team here. I've had my babies. (laughs) So
2: how was it, though, to go through that loss? Like, I know that's a big gear shift, but to go through that multiple times, a miscarriage, then an ectopic pregnancy, How was that as both a couple as well? My parents experienced a lot of pregnancy loss when Mm -hmm. they were having their four kids and my sister was still birthed before I was born. And I know when I speak to my mum and my dad, they're both affected hugely still to this day by those losses, but they experience it so differently. Like mum literally had to go and give birth to my sister Jennifer and dad felt helpless because he couldn't take any of it away from her. How did you and Jonathan feel about that?
0: Well, so I had, yeah, miscarriage, Olivia, miscarriage, ectopic. So... I tried to be, so my, my surgeon, I knew something was wrong because I had a sore shoulder, which was weird. And I went and I tried to get it massage out, but I just started feeling sick. And then when they went to the scan, they were talking to each other, the doctor, she called the doctor in. And my obstetrician had said, like he put the scan on, he just went quiet. And I said, there's nothing there, is there? So I could see the shape and I knew I, I'd already seen what an embryo looks like and I knew it wasn't there. So then I was sent around to like the imaging and to do a proper scan and there was a lot going on but they were talking to each other and then Jonathan was just holding my hand because he knew and I was trying to be the strong one like, you know, I know these things can happen and with endo it is – ectopic pregnancy is a huge risk because of if you've had it on your fallopian tubes, it buckles the tube. So my doctor said to me, we either see if it passes because they didn't know where it was. They knew there was a pregnancy but they didn't know where it was. So we either see if it passes, I can give you a medication to make it pass quicker, or I can go in and have a look. But I didn't have the pain in my pelvis. It was my shoulders, and that was from internal bleeding. So I said, nah, like my gut feel. And I've always been right with my body, and I said, no, I need you to go in, something's not right. And then, yeah, he could see like the tube was about to burst, and he just couldn't believe that I didn't have the pain. So... Initially, I was joking, and then it so happened that the two nurses that admitted me were pregnant. And I know, and they were so apologetic because they were then, they'd come in with it and they're like, oh, to see what I was in for. And I was like, no, no, it's so fine. Like, you know, when are you due? And I'm having that conversation. And I don't know, I just tried to, I think I tried to be so strong going in. And then when I woke up, anesthetic brings out the truth in everybody. And I was bawling my eyes out at five o'clock in the morning. I was texting my husband, I need someone here now. I was texting my parents who were on the Gold Coast and we lived in Brisbane. And I was like, I can't do this. And then I started abusing nurses because I was saying it was too hot in there and this should be a hospital and where's the fucking air conditioning. And I started ripping my clothes off and then they were like, okay, we're going to get you a private room. I was like, thank you. But I, I think that's when it all kind of came out once you realise that it is actually – there. I, I had that gut feeling something was wrong yeah. but then being told – and being told you've lost a tube and I still wanted more children, I didn't know that you can ovulate on one side and it get taken up on the other. I didn't know any of that. So all I knew was is this now 50% chance that's been cut again? Yeah. Like I'm already against the odds. Has this now lowered my chances? Yeah, it was really, really difficult but again – I'm glad that I told my friends I told because they were all around me and that was what got me through.
1: One thing I didn't know about your story was before we were kind of doing some more research was I saw a blog post that you wrote in 2015 for Beyond Blue about experiencing postnatal depression after having Olivia and you wrote at the time – During a bad attack, I would start by feeling off balance, then nauseous. My face would turn pale as a ghost and I would feel really anxious and hold on to things as I walked to ensure I didn't fall over, especially when carrying Olivia. Can you speak? It's got goosebumps. (laughs) It's a bit weird when someone reads your own quote, especially about something like that. But can you speak to that time for us?
0: I think like you said before about getting excited, I really think a lot of the postnatal depression and post-traumatic stress kind of came from the fact of thinking I was never going to be able to, you know, having that doubt that I might never be able to have a baby and then next minute I do and I didn't get that overwhelming bubble of love that everyone had spoken about. Mm. So it was almost like all my life, it's all I wanted and then I've got it. And I was just having these horrific episodes. So, yeah, it was like that. And and when you Google, because that's what you do at night, in the middle, like, you know, Googling symptoms and everything comes up as brain tumour, so don't Google. (laughs) But everything, like, I would be under my sheets at night and when I couldn't sleep and I would be on my phone so that I'd be under the sheet so I didn't wake my husband and I would be Googling all my symptoms and it didn't ever come up as postnatal depression. Like it never – being dizzy and off balance and, you know, to me it was more like iron deficiency or an ear infection, you know, off balance and the anxiety then came from that feeling of, you know, being unsteady and, as you said, like holding her and being at home alone and thinking, am I going to pass out and I've got like a baby here with me? It was a really weird – weird like symptom that I went to multiple doctors which you would have read like I had so many tests done and I remember going to this Chinese doctor and he said to me the term beside yourself is literally that Mm -hmm. so it is when you feel when you are beside yourself you are almost out of your body Mm -hmm. and not grounded and not within your body so you are beside yourself and I was like I never thought of it like that so then I would work a lot on grounding Mm. and if I felt anything coming on like out for dinner because it would sort of turn into a bit of social anxiety because I didn't know what was going on so I would often wiggle my toes in my shoes under the table or I'd get up to go to the bathroom and push my feet into the ground to just sort of bring myself back into my body Mm -hmm. and that helped quite a lot but it was yeah it was terrifying and it was 18 months till I was diagnosed.
2: I mean looking back now as well it makes so much sense that you had so much pressure on you so much stress to do with falling pregnant staying pregnant giving birth like this had always been such a huge colossal thing in your life that it really does feel like you were dealt one of the worst cards when it came to reproductive health so it's not really surprising is it that you went through all this stress internally and that yes. started manifesting
0: well and it's really common so I think a lot of women that go through IVF or any conception issues it is like my doctor did say to me you might need to speak to someone and I was like no, no I'll be fine like this is what I've always wanted mm-hmm. but it's almost that you know I think it's really common that anything to do with conception you ne- you need to know that it's okay if you don't feel that straight away and it's quite normal because what you've always dreamed for and then you get it and hormones are wild like hormones do crazy things so I always say to my girlfriends when I go up to meet you know meet the baby and go to the hospital I always go to the mum first hug her tell her how amazing she is like, can you believe you grew a human? You are awesome. Because the baby's cute. The baby's always going to be cute. I mean, sometimes I look a bit like an say, alien. I was
1: going to say not always cute. Okay, wait, the truth.
0: Like, my son Jack literally looked like Benjamin Button. <laughs> <laughs> um, but everyone goes to the baby first. And my advice to anyone going to see a mum and the baby, go and tell her how amazing she is first. Because baby doesn't know you're there. Like, cute, but because otherwise it's just that, you know telling her she did a good job because it's you know it's hard and growing and giving birth or having a like however that baby comes out it is tough and what they have to go through and normally you know you're sitting on the bed and you're in a huge pad and maybe sitting on a frozen condom because of your stitches which was in my case and people all coming in and you're thinking and I had a catheter and it's like wow this is just not cute and people are all excited and you're trying to feel good so it's like go to the mum tell that her is how amazing advice. tell her how amazing she is
1: coming up after the break the incredibly moving reason Kylie decided to start running
0: but first a word
1: from today's sponsor You obviously went on to have two other beautiful children and then, as you mentioned before, at 34 you decided to have a hysterectomy. Yes. Talk to us about that decision because I can't imagine it would have been easy. I mean, as young women, I feel like that word hysterectomy is incredibly overwhelming just as a word. It's huge, Mm. yeah.
0: So Jack came very soon after the ectopic and that was terrifying because I had the same symptoms and I was like, oh, no, it's another ectopic. And then because of my troubles and when Jack was or just before his first birthday, we started trying because we thought it may take... So they're only 20 months apart, 19 months apart. And then when Macy was only six months old, I, my symptoms started returning and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. So I went back to my gynecologist and I had spoken and I took my husband with me and I was like, right, I'm done. I've done all I can do. It's happening again. I am grateful I have three beautiful healthy children but now it's my turn to somewhat get some relief and I just can't do this again. Get your life back a bit. Yeah exactly so anyway he's like I really need you to think about it and I'm like I have thought about it and I've been going through this since I was 15 years old like this pain and knowing since I was 21 and he's like you know you're very young and then we joked because my last pregnancy was horrific and I started dilating when I was 25 weeks pregnant and then I had to have all these like you put pessaries in every day and I had to have steroid injections for her lungs and all this stuff happened and I winched a lot and I was crook like I used to get so sick and then I looked at both my obstetrician and my husband and I was like Okay, do we really want – because she was only six months old. I'm like, do we really want me to be pregnant again? (laughs) Like, do you guys – and they both looked and they were like, no. (laughs) Nope, okay, we get it. It was bad. So, again, I think the big thing with any endometriosis surgery is every woman and, again, who's reached out to me doubts the severity of what they've got and doubts if it's actually there. So when I went under, the first thing I woke up, and I, you know, once I came to again, I said to him, what would you have done? If it was your choice, and he said, I had to take your womb, it was everywhere, it it took him, he prides himself on being able to do a quick hysterectomy, and he's like, it took him two and a half hours to get everything out, and um, it was going up to my, like the kidney vessel, I couldn't really understand it, but... He said it was really difficult and, yeah, it, it sort of had to – he couldn't untangle everything. It had to go. So that was that validation, which, again, I knew, but just to hear that what you're feeling is not in your head is just a relief. Yeah. And every surgery I've had, the week before, a couple of days before, I pu- I go to pull out and be like, you know what, I don't want to waste the doctor's time. Like There is people who are far more in need and – it's probably not there. Maybe it's just scar tissue pain. Maybe it's just nerves. You know, I've had it for a long time. So maybe it's just, it is a bit in my head, you know, that mind-body connection, maybe, you know, shooting off that pain receptors, which they talk about a lot in pain management. You know, maybe that's what's happening. So maybe I need to just channel my body, concentrate on it healing itself, and I'm going to be fine. Like the amount of times I've called, nearly called up to cancel because I doubt myself and my pain. And then so that's why when I every time I wake up, I make them write on my hand yes or no if it's – so I've got photos on my page where – so I wake up because I'm always like, didn't it go to the nurses? And then now they just like put my hand in front of my face and I'm like I'm upset but then I'm also like, no, I know my body. Yeah. Which is, you know, really good. I can't imagine then how –
1: angry and frustrated you must have been and to have had that hysterectomy to have had all of these surgeries and then to realize that not only is the pain back but you're going to need to be you know operated on
0: again what was that like well I so my surgeon didn't tell me and I never asked and I think again a lot of it is not by beware but you know that kind of not putting that negative
1: yeah energy into the world yep I don't even want to think about it
0: and I didn't know So I rang him and he didn't tell me and I didn't ask and and he never said it was a cure, but what was there needed to come out anyway. Mm. But he never – it's not like he – because people will be like, they gave you false information. No, it was – we didn't even want to think about that. We were just hoping that this would give me relief Mm. for, you know, as long as possible. I had moved to Melbourne at this point and it was only 12 months after my hysterectomy – and I was like, wow, that feels a lot like endopain. And I was like, hmm, no, nah, it can't be. And it was around ovulation and then a couple of other times and then, you know, shooting pains up your bottom and shooting pains and then the ones where it feels like you've been hit by a sniper rifle. And I was like, no, surely not. So I left a message with his reception and that he called me and I said to him, is it common that after a hysterectomy, like, you get a lot of scar tissue? pain or phantom pain because I don't I don't have a uterus anymore like I don't have cervix I I still have my ovaries because they were at that stage they were the only which it's been on since but they were the only thing that didn't have endo and then he said to me when are you here again and I was like actually I'm coming up in a couple of weeks and he said come in and we'll have a chat and then I started researching as well and realized that it could go back and I was like fuck like what and I think that one hit me that one probably hit me one of the hardest and it took me a really long time and then I had to fly home with the kids and had to get a bit of help because my family were in Queensland so I was here on my own and yeah that was really really difficult but as I said there was never any misleading of Mm. saying it was a cure but I just thought if you don't have the parts... Like, where sure. does it go? Yeah. So it was all pelvis, bladder, bowel, everywhere, like that <gasps> it could find little spots. It was there. So that was, yeah, I was pissed off with that.
2: Kylie, what do you actually do? Do you scream? Do you cry? Like, I can't fathom hearing your story and how many times you've been on this yo yo of mm. just getting surgery, it coming back, getting surgery, getting a hysterectomy and it coming back. How do you let that anger out? I can't even imagine how much of a toll that would take on you internally to be like, what the fuck can I do now? Like, yeah. am I going to live with this for the rest of my life?
0: Yeah, which you, which I am. So it's kind of – I cry. I'm a crier. Like, I love crying
1: you're among cries.
0: Yeah. Oh, we great. are big criters. Like I can't believe I actually haven't cried. Like when you read out my quote, I was like, don't do it, don't do it, no, don't no, no, it. No. I cry. Like I, f- I find a lot. But I'm a happy crier as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like when, you know, if you see someone greet someone at the airport. Oh, yeah. Which we haven't seen for a long time. But the, like I'll cry. watching. I, I can cry watching ads. Like I'm shocking <laughs> with crying. So tears. Like I think tears really more than anger mm-hmm. because I probably more – feel helpless rather than angry but then I have to turn it around and feel grateful which it's it's sort of that vicious cycle of you know where do you because then I look at people that don't have children and have been through this horrible and miscarriages and losses and what you're talking about so I don't know it's that point of being grateful but then it's also you know there's always someone worse off and it doesn't make what you're going through any less Mm -hmm. stressful and upsetting but yeah, it's probably more crying than screaming and yelling.
2: That's a tricky conversation, like pregnancy loss or struggling with these things after you have a child. I feel like it's something that lots of women feel like they can't talk about. I know my mum felt it when she had a stillborn baby after mm. my older sister Claire because she's like, well, where's the room for this conversation because I don't want to alienate the women who haven't been able to have children but also yes. my grief is still valid. Absolutely. Do you feel lost sometimes being like where can I take this story because I don't want to offend people but I also want to get this out
0: and make people feel seen? My husband, like Jonathan, often, which it's only been in the last sort of couple of surgeries because I would just say to him, okay, I'm going to go see Manish again. He's like, why? Because I would hide it because to me I'm like, it's boring chat. Yeah. Like I've been through this for, it is, I'm in pain. Like how boring? Like move on. Mm. And I know it's valid But it's a conversation that, again, if you give airtime to it, is it then that it takes over your life? Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I think that whole not talking about it is good and bad in a way but not giving it airtime. But then I think it does need airtime. So for me it's more about supporting and helping other people and that's when I started my running page and the outpour of messages and the people that say, my parents don't know or my friends don't know and I'm like what do you mean? So not that I talk about it all the time but obviously my friends and family know because yeah. and my kids know because they this my son used to think I was just going to get extra belly buttons. <laughs> Why do you have so many belly buttons? And I was like, "Oh god." And cuz they're so and also the scars just do not justify that shit that you go through in the pain like these tiny little <laughs> it's great but the tiny little keyhole scars are, it's like oh wow like and you've got a little a little keyhole this. surgery yeah <laughs> like it, just a little stitch there like one stitch it's like wow that is not what I went through but the page probably a thing that upset me the most was starting that page it took off so fast and the amount of women that connected just makes me so sad that it is Everywhere. So, I mean, they say one in 10. I'm going to call bullshit on that. I reckon maybe one in 10 that are. um, Diagnosed? Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think I've got a group of, there's a group of, say, 10 friends. There's six of us that have severe endo. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know, it's just everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think the conversation is so important, especially if people don't feel like they can talk to their friends or family.
1: Talk to us about running. You just mentioned that page and you kind of – it was a very well (laughs) thought out answer for us to lead us into the the question that I wanted to ask, which was where did running come in on all of this?
0: So, um, again, with pregnancy loss – well, not pregnancy loss, it was loss – my good friend Sally Crinnis – oh, God, I'm crying. (laughs) Um, She had a little girl and – she was 99 days old and she um, passed away from a rare genetic heart condition and um, having been through loss of a different kind and nothing like that. I mean, I just can't even imagine taking your b- healthy baby home and because I didn't know. And then she was diagnosed one week later. She was well, – or two weeks after that, she passed away. Like, it was that fast. So they – Knew nothing was wrong. And I just think of that moment when, you know, the baby's in the capsule and that photo when you're leaving the hospital that everyone does. And she was just so unbelievable and strong. And I just didn't know like how she was getting out of bed every day. And she has another little girl, Sophia. And anyway, so Sally's, one of Sally's friends said, I'm going to run the Melbourne Marathon in honour of you. And Lucia and then bit by bit that grew and became Lucia's Angels and I signed up to do the 5k and then I was like no come on you can do a bit more so I hadn't run and so then I signed on to do the 10 and then Sally was going to with her twin sister Susie they were going to do I think at first she was just going to do the 5k walk because one she had just lost her daughter secondly she was only I think about five months postnatal So next minute she was like, stuff it. And she signed up to do the full marathon. And I was just absolutely in awe of her strength and just how she was literally getting out of bed every day, let alone training for a marathon. So that moment when they came into the MCG, we did a full guard of honour and we were all in pink. um, And it's on the Melbourne Marathon website and on. Sally Kryniss's page and I was just so touched by what she was able to achieve and then even she was interviewed straight after and she spoke so like her message was so clear and oh she was just unbelievable I just was in awe the whole time and I still am and then we had drinks afterwards and then we had a lot of rose. And another friend got up to do a speech and then Sally spoke and Sally thanked everyone and again she's actually calling. <laughs> oh my she, god. She, she <laughs> her ears are burning. Her ears are burning. She's like, are you crying
2: about <laughs> me on a podcast yesterday? <laughs> <all right?" laughs>
0: oh, that's why
2: That's amazing.
0: Oh uh, yes, that's weird. Um <laughs> but so she got up and she was like, right, we're gonna do this every year now. And Lucia's Angels is gonna grow and they end up raising like well over three hundred thousand dollars for the Royal Children's Cardiology Ward. So yeah, we were at this after drinks and just the whole day I just I just felt like I was staring at her, just you know, in awe. And then she's like, Okay, so every now everyone goes up a category. So if you've done the 10, you're gonna do the half. And if anyone wants to join us, You can do the full marathon. And I was probably two bottles of rosé deep. And I was like, I'm doing it. Like (laughs) I'm doing the full marathon. And I so did a couple of other people. Not one person this year within that 300 have done anything. (laughs) But I'm the type of person that if I commit to it, it, I'm doing it. So because she didn't end up running and then I found out just before that I had to have surgery and I spoke to Sally and I was like, Lucia will always be my inspiration. You will always be my inspiration, which is in a lot of the photos, you might see gold wings, which were from her funeral. So they were on my hat and it's actually really ironic, but my friend made me a logo, Endo Runner. And if you look at it, it actually looks like an L, it's an E, but it looks like an L Mm -hmm. and it was just ironic and the pink and everything. So... I just thought if she can do it, I can do this. And it just gave me motivation.
1: But Kylie, you were recovering from your ninth endometriosis surgery in February this year. We're recording this in the first week of December. You ran the marathon not even a week ago, right? Yes, Saturday just gone, yeah. How
0: how do you pull your body into that? I just – to me, I think I'm not going to make it any worse. Like I've tried to do things to make it better and it's made it worse. So – you know obviously I got medical clearance before I even started walking I did do a couple of laps around the ward but I did find that movement was key this time and it it really really helped with my recovery and helped with my mental state I didn't want to sit in self-pity as we said this is a reality now like this is my life and I am trying to think positive and think that that's my last and I'm putting that out to the universe but it might not be so I just I don't know I've ticked over day by day and it was honestly the hardest thing I've ever done then we go into a pandemic where you're not even allowed you know I just hit 21ks and then we got told we had to be inside and we could only exercise for one hour now I am not fast so (laughs) going from that also amongst friends in that (laughs) category oh my god and I was like how and I remember I had a full meltdown then And I said to my husband, like, I have worked my ass off to get to a half marathon. I am so close and we have one hour. So we ended up buying a treadmill. So I would run for an hour outside and then I'd come inside and I'd finish off the rest. Mm. But that's a mind game as well. And I don't know, the motivation was, you know, always Sally, always. And then the messages I would receive and the page was just such a beautiful place to go like my personal page I don't know has 50 something thousand followers I hardly go on that I go on this endo runner page and it fills me full of so much joy and positivity and it is just a really I think that even the whole endo community is such a really beautiful supportive space Mm -hmm. so yeah I think I, I honestly don't know how I did it looking back but I was bloody determined.
2: More than 40 kilometres. How
0: does 42 it feel? 42.2.
2: 42.2. Yes. 42.2. <laughs> How does it feel to cross the finish line?
0: So the first, probably 25 was okay. And then I got to about 20. They say you hit a wall and I well and truly hit that wall. So about 28 k's in, I was texting my husband saying I'm dying and I had my niece Shay riding along behind me giving me all my treats and my supplements and what I needed because I had to have something every five kilometers because it's quite dangerous like going for that long like your body is depleted. I was seeing spots I was so dizzy I literally thought I was going down and it was almost like the wind just there was just no air it was quite humid that day and I was scared, like I was scared that I wasn't going to finish this and like I almost felt, I was like, I think I'm going to die. Like this was the hardest thing and I have birthed three children and my first birth was traumatic and it was the hardest mental thing I have ever had to do because it is a long time. With 7Ks to go, also just I had 10K to go and then my 11-year-old daughter Olivia my husband ran up with her and he's like, Liv wants to do the last 10 with you. And it was, he. he's like, now Liv, go and just don't talk, don't ask questions, just go with mum. <laughs> don't annoy her. Don't. And, and we were probably about two minutes in. She's like, how far to go? And I was like, I can't even <laughs> talk about that. And then she, I wish I had footage of this, but the GoPro died on the front of the bike. But she was rubbing my back and we were arm in arm for a bit and having a daughter or having two daughters it is one of my biggest fears and it's another thing that I don't like to give light to but the reality is I could pass it on so that triggers me so much and I think just the fact that she was there with me was such a huge drive to cry again (laughs) to get me through And she just kept saying to me, you're doing so well. And then, yeah, she's rubbing me on my back and I'm thinking, and I kept checking on her and I'm like, Liv, it's really hot. Like this is a long, you've never done 10K. This is a long way. And she's like, no, mum, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then I'm passing her my water and checking on her. But she was just so, and I could feel the pride in her. And I think it was, you know, something that I almost, um, yeah, I felt like there was that peace that, That was meant to happen it wasn't planned and it was meant to happen to get me through because as I said I'm running for future generations and she unfortunately with Macy could be one of them and crossing the finish line and then we we sort of false started a bit and then I was like no put the ribbon down I've still got more to go so then we went up and then I said to Liv let's bring it home and we sprinted down the hill and then was wait just a bit further jack was waiting so i grabbed his hand and then little macy and we were flying at that point <laughs> and her legs were going like a million miles an hour and yeah we all went through and we just got the most beautiful footage and lifting that ribbon up i will never ever forget it because it's just something that yeah with seven k's to go when i started crying. And I didn't want her to know I was crying, but it was just so hard. And I think for the kids to see your mum, who's not an athlete, like their dad was an athlete, so he did a marathon. And that's kind of expected. But as you said, coming back from nine surgeries, everything I've been through, I'm not a runner. I can say I am now. But pushing, there's something about pushing yourself to the limit and doing it for something bigger than yourself which is research and you know hopefully one day a cure is something pretty special and a moment i will never forget
2: feels like the theme of your story at least of your 2020 between Olivia and Sally and the end of run a page is like
0: the sisterhood it really is and it i just think it's it's just been such a shitty year for everyone and so many people have said to me in such a bad year I'm so glad and I don't know how you've kept going but you've given me motivation to get out and go for a walk or you've given me motivation to start yoga like whatever it is to think you know you're still going amongst everything that's going on and I had so many things thrown at me like my knees went my back there was so many issues like with my feet but I just refused to give up. And I feel like it's the one good thing that's come out of this horrible year. And I think that's what's kind of banded a lot of people together as well, because they've followed along from the beginning. I bawled when I did my first 5k and my mum actually was at home and she's, I came in the door and I was like hyperventilating. And she's like, Oh my God, did you fall over? And I said, no, I just did five kilometers. And she was like, <laughs> oh and then she thought I was putting way too much pressure on myself and yeah I was like no it's just it was that thing that was what I could do before surgery so yeah. to get to that point again was like okay tick this I've got a long way to go but that 5k was really important.
1: Kylie the last question we ask everyone is for their definition of success so I'm very intrigued with all of this in mind what is success to
0: you? That's a really good question I think success for me like for me personally. Just would be setting something, a realistic goal and whatever that, like I said before, everyone has a different level, not comparing to other people's goals, not comparing to anything else, just finding something that is slightly out of reach or considered slightly out of reach and working your absolute butt off to get there. To get anywhere in life, there is going to be hurdles and there's going to be setbacks and there is going to be Whatever it is, whether career, anything, you are going to get pushed down so many times, but it's when it's not about that. It's the getting up and the getting to it that's the most important. Kylie, thank you so much. I am so grateful that
1: you came on. I actually feel a bit teary because I think, I think for a lot of people with endo, there's just a lot of sh- a lot of shit that you go through and I think seeing you be able to run how much you did is like insane so thank you so much I can't believe I'm crying (laughs) genuinely I am very very grateful it's contagious it is it's contagious crying someone's crying too but um, I'm a sympathetic (laughs) cryer you you have had an incredible year and this has been an incredible first in-person interview back so thanks so
0: much thank you for having me
1: Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Kylie Brown. If you're wanting more from Kylie, go follow her on Instagram at endo.runner. If you enjoyed this chat, we also recommend you listen to our other In Conversation episode with fellow endo warrior, Bridget Hustaway. We will pop the links to that chat in our show notes. As for us, the best way to support the show is click follow on Spotify or subscribe on Apple or recommend this episode to a friend. Thank you so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Monday.
2: Oh, hi. It's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hanson here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week. Now, every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a (laughs) time to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real-life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in -hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.